Welcome to Monster Porn, weird fiction and horror podcast. The podcast that hears YouTube is cracking down again on fringe content. I guess we'll have to go back to making cat videos. Cat porn it is. Today's story is Narancha, a Slavic vampire myth by Brett Norwood. Happy Monday, Monsturbators. We have some good news if you're tired of being naked. Who's tired of that? I am, because you are. The good news is that we've released new shirts on our Teespring store, including a Godspeed Strange Cowboy design that I am wearing at this very moment. Repping the team. I like it. I like it when you wear the things I make. Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's creepy. We've also got our Moms Love Monster Porn design a new slick logo tee, and our feature design, The Past Kicks the Futures Behind, my homage to the over-the-top 90s comics and cartoons. And we've also got phone cases and stickers, too, if nakedness isn't your immediate issue. Not only do we have Brett's kick-ass art, but we've got art from Dustin S. and Nick Calavera. Look, if you love monster porn, this is a great way to support the show and keep us going. Monster Porn listeners can use the code TENTACLE15 for 15% off orders. Find our designs at teespring.com slash stores slash monster porn. Link also in the show notes and on our website. If you enjoy listening, please leave a five-star rating and review wherever you may listen to podcasts. Hey, Brett, what are you doing at the computer? Ow. Is that porn? Oh, Matt. No. Well... Of a sort. Have you heard of earth porn? I bet you'd plow that, wouldn't you? Nah, I see what you did there. No, look at this, Matt. I'm convinced that NASA is covering up the truth about global whoring. Huff, dude, I don't want to have another conversation about global... Wait, did you say global whoring? Yes. I've pulled this photo from NASA. What does it look like to you? Well, I see a large factory with a big smokestack in the middle of a landscape. Yes. Now watch. Enhance! Brett, you can't just shout enhance at your computer like on a TV show and expect it to... Oh. Oh, would you look at that? It enhanced. Now what do you see? Well, when you zoom out like that, it kind of looks like like that smokestack is a giant cigarette. It's like the, the Earth is smoking. Exactly. Now watch what happens when we zoom out to see the whole Earth from space. Enhance! How did you get your computer to... Oh, oh oh my god! What do you see, Matt? My god, when you zoom out to the whole planet, the Earth is smoking a cigarette in fishnets on on the street corner with way too much makeup. My god, Brett, the Earth is is a whore! Yes, Matt. I tell you the scientific consensus is that in less than 25 years, if global whoring is not stopped, The Earth will be a complete slut. Man, what is it? Is it the money? Is it daddy issues? Why is the Earth resorting to prostitution? Matt, 
She has seven and a half billion children she has to feed. She's doing that for us? Oh, oh God, I thought our mother was a saint. Oh, oh man, that's a lot of teats. Blood began to mat the fur, which clumped now as I pulled at the wolf's head. Get up, Dishan, I pleaded, tugging at the wet scruff. I lay his head in my lap. The breeze spun through the forest, rifling the leaves, looking for us. Darkness came. The sound of the spirits singing in the lake, as they had at twilight, had failed. Through the whipping bows, the one who had been denied a funeral came. The storm wind bore not of nature. A sun swart mass like a wasp or an ant the size of an ox, and, once, they say, having been a man, may whomever might hear my plight, God or forgot or fay, hear my plea and help us now. Narancha, Dushan breathed. Run. Flee to the Black Mother. With early June came the festival of Rosalia. It was then that I went into the woods at twilight. We had been at the pizza shop. I was with Elinka and Yashko. We'd made dinner of it, which our parents excused because we told them we would study together while we were there. And now it was getting late. When we're married, Elinka told Yashko, and this must not have been something that they had talked about because of the fact that she took it for granted raised his caterpillar eyebrows. We'll get married in the woods. It'll be very traditional. Well, Yasko answered dryly, I guess I know what we'll be doing on our honeymoon. Alinka lowered her eyelids at him and appeared to be readying to hit him. He glanced at me and then held his eyes on Alinka, a smirk beginning to break out. Screwing the ticks out of you, <laughs> he said and laughed. The best part? He went on. As you'll be an easy bride to please once the encephalitis sits in. She hit him. She didn't smile until she looked at me and saw that I was laughing. Then she let herself go a little bit. But she shook her head disapprovingly. Yashko might decide to run off with the Rizalka, I said, referring to the water nymphs associated with Rosalia time. I'd been fascinated with folklore lately, and so the water women came to mind. He shook his head. I don't eat fish. I didn't say eat them, I protested. He winked at me and I got his meaning. Elinka hit him again and we all laughed. So when are you going to get a boyfriend? Yasko asked me, and I went redder than his joke had already made me. She doesn't want a boyfriend, Elinka said. She sees in you what creatures like you are like. Do you like any of my friends? He wondered. I'll set you up. He said and he laughed heartily, seeming to acknowledge just what a joke that was given his friends. Just not Christo, he said. I wouldn't date Christo. Alinka gave him another evil eye. I'm glad to hear that, she told him. Well, maybe if he's wealthy, Yasko joked. Even then, <laughs> that sense of humor, that chin. I was glad they hadn't waited for me to answer. 
I didn't know what to say for myself except that no boy I'd ever liked had heretofore approached me, and I didn't like any of Yashko's friends. They were goofs, like him but even more so. It's getting dark, Elinka observed. Dad will think we're making out somewhere. I'd like to think we're making out somewhere, Yashko said. Alinka slapped him once more. Walk with us to the McDonald's and then go home that way. It's safer, Alinka said. I opened my mouth to answer, but rethought what I was going to say. I'll be okay, I said after my hesitation. It will be much shorter the other way. I won't be out long. She dug into me with her eyes. And I have my phone. Are you sure? Yasko asked me his eyes getting serious for once as he leaned over the table in the empty pizza box. I'm sure, I said. I go that way all the time. I'll be quick. My confidence came from walking that way all the time, but that was in the daylight. How different it would be at night hadn't sunk into me yet, but my friend's concern was beginning to make me doubt. You can call us. We won't be far off, Yasko said. He tagged on, lowering his brow at me. Seriously. I had one earbud in under my hoodie as I hustled down the street, past the closed and barred storefronts. There was still a line at the kebab shop, and a few people remained at the bus stop. I'd left out the other earbud intentionally, to be more aware of my surroundings. I was listening to folk music. It was a path I'd gone down on YouTube traditional Slavic music, and folk metal. The appeal, to me, was the contrast to what I saw around me on the street. The poster by the bus stop illustrated it perfectly. The poster showed a Middle Eastern family, nicely dressed, happy, smiling. The father could be a doctor or a lawyer. In bright contemporary lettering, it said, The New Europeans. You know, there is nothing wrong with giving aid to those who need it. I understand it. I'm not saying there aren't people deserving of our hospitality, because there are. But I've never seen that family, the family on the poster, in my town. The young men from the tent city, by the woods, were not these people. The eyes that I felt on me as I passed the awning of the old pawn shop were not those eyes. As I waited to cross the street, I kept my eyes down and my ear open. The whine of a passing car raised my eyes instinctively. When I brought them up, there was a group of three young men down the street. But they were far off yet, and when I first saw them, none of them appeared to be paying any attention to me. But as I waited, I became suspicious when they fell silent, and I glanced again from the corner of my eye. I accidentally made eye contact with the leading man. I perceived that the others had been watching me too, but had already diverted their eyes. I looked away as quickly as I could. I crossed the street. When I had gone a block, I glanced back and found, to my horror, the men had also crossed the street as well. I began to have a panic attack. I went as quickly as I could walk while still playing it somewhat cool, heading toward the bridge and thought to myself that when I reached the woods, I could cut across them before the migrant camp, near the park where the police kept the migrants from setting up tents. A shortcut home I had taken many times before the migrants came. 
I knew I could make it home swiftly this way, at least in daylight. I would rush through as soon as I rounded the bend, and was momentarily out of their sight. And maybe they would not even be sure where it was I'd got off the street. After crossing another street, where, fortunately, the dwindling traffic made it easy to cross without waiting, I made it across the bridge and around the blind curve in the road. I ran into the forest. The air was cold and quiet. I struggled to keep my feet and breath in control, to make as little noise as I could in case they were close. But I neither saw nor heard anyone behind me. Yet. Maybe I was paranoid. Maybe they had nothing to do with me. The tent city was, in fact, out this way. And maybe they were only on their way back to there. But, then again, that look. And then that they went quiet and crossed the street right after me. No. It felt wrong. I was doing well staying quiet, until I struck my toes on some deadfall I couldn't see in the dark, and I made a noise, catching myself on the ground and yelping and cursing under my breath. Then, stopped now for a moment, I examined what was behind me and, to my horror, I could see the silhouettes of the men far back toward the street, and I heard the sound of one of them talking. I got up and sprinted. Near to the pond, I could hear some women singing and I reasoned there must be an event at the park. It was traditional singing, like a folk chorale. In my state, I did not think much on it, but enough to think only that there must be an event for Rizalka week, and that if I had to cry for help, there might be someone near enough to hear me. I still aimed to cross and to go home. At some point, my hand had found my phone in my pocket, and I was running with it in my palm. Realizing that I had taken it out, I wasn't sure whether I would call Alinka and Yashko, who could be there in mere minutes, or the police. There is an ancient barrow in that vicinity, that is, a mound they say had been the burial of an old king. It was near that place that I looked behind me again. I knew I was damned when I saw the foreigners running. I knew then that I would call the police, if only that when they showed up, too late. They could come for what was left of me. The singing had grown louder. I prepared to call for help. Desperation had totally broken my fear of making a scene. But as I drew my breath to scream, I fell again, and the scream came out as an insensible cry like an animal rather than an intelligible call for help. My ribs hit a trunk, forcing the wind out of me. Looking back again, I saw for one last time the three men after me with the horrifying animal certainty of wolves pursuing a deer, in the manner in which they moved, and barked taunts in a language I could not understand. I opened, again, my mouth to scream, and that is when the monster passed by. All I knew then was that someone had stepped between myself and the pursuers. Someone like an old man, hunched and hoary, with its dogs leashed around his ankles. Gasping, swallowing my voice, I got up again to run and swiftly fell in a hole. I rolled and came to a stop on my side in the ancient ditch that was beside the barrow of the unnamed king. When I looked back now, I saw no one. But from then on, I was not alone.
not far from where the young woman fled through the woods, in the hollow in some dense scrub. There lay a nest formed from two old parkas, a sullied t-shirt, and some packing material. On this bed, there lay a sleepless child. The boy Asim left Afghanistan almost a year ago now. His father had purchased their passage via Turkey through a broker for approximately 2,000 euros, every euro of it being worth their escape from the Taliban his father had wagered. After waiting on the coast of Turkey through three nights for a boat they began to think would never come, waiting there with strangers, some of whom, rumor told, were traffickers embedded with the migrants, they finally got their passage. They learned that those who had paid 2,500 euros, or more, had been given preference, hence the three-day wait. When they attained Greece, sprinting up from a beach littered with hundreds of discarded life preservers and various trash, into the rocks and then into the woods, it was there that the traffickers had taken a seam and sodomized him. They said, as a punishment to his father for advising some of the others, that there were traffickers disguised in their midst. Then as they progressed into the Balkans, it was there that a gang of some of the ISIS soldiers, who were fleeing the fall of their short-lived caliphate, killed Asim's father, stabbing him multiple times to send a message to keep quiet to others in the tent city. Now, Asim had made it to Europe's doorstep, and with a closed border to the north and a sea to the south, and all his family's savings spent, he could neither progress nor return. He was ten. Asim sat up in his bed and listened to the night. There was singing, foreign singing, ghostly and distant. He strained his ears to make it out. That is when the little green men, with the big heads and horns, started to manifest, sitting in the bows of Asim's shrub, staring at him with blank eyes. He could see through them a little bit. He started up from his nest of coats and clothes and trash. Then, as I stood from the ditch of the barrow, I saw them coming. I saw the funeral for the king. I could not see the men anymore, and I wondered only briefly at their disappearance, because something else was happening that gave me little time to think about what had seemingly chased them away. And in any case, there were other people now to save me. Up the little causeway came a procession in old garb, bearing lanterns, and some men among them bore a beer, and on the beer, beneath the pall, there was the suggestion of a supine body. The people shone with light as much as the lanterns, as if the light flowed through them rather than reflecting off of them. I began to call to them for help, but I only made some indistinct noises before I shut my mouth. I glanced once more behind me, and then I watched. They bore the dead man to the portal of the barrow, from which, I realize now, the stone that had always sealed it had been removed. A small fire burned near the opening. Women in crowns of garland reached the barrow first and were mourning, theatrically moaning and making noises. They were followed by the men with the beer, who lay it down at the mouth of the tomb. As they stood near the fire, I was sure then that I could see the flames of fire through their bodies. 
Are you well? I heard. A boy had come up beside me, bearing a lantern. I, I stuttered. I was going to tell him that I needed help, but now I was confused. There was someone after me, I said. He raised his lamp to look back into the trees. I looked with him and, again, now saw nothing and heard nothing. All seems at peace, he told me. I took in his appearance. He wore a costume, a hair shirt, and sagging pantaloons. Are you part of the festivities? I asked. Thinking still this had something to do with Rizalka events, I'd assumed to be going on. Hmm? He toned. Oh, it is Rizalka time, he said. Or do you mean to say the king's funeral? He spoke so weird, so old-fashioned. The king's funeral, I echoed stupidly. Yeah, he said. See, the king has died, and tonight he is buried. King? King of where? He smiled at me. Oh, yes, the king of the ancestors, the king of the village of the dead. See, he lay now among the women who mourn over him. Tonight we shall place him in the tomb, and they say, He shall have forty days and nights for his spirit to find a new path, lest his spirit become lost on earth to become a Rizalka or, well. The women were singing a traditional chorale as the men prepared to move the king inside the barrow. The boy took a long breath and went on. You see, usually the tomb was ceremonial only, for he burned the dead in the manner of the Sarmatians. Before that, our people, they say, were buried in mound tombs like these, which we inherited from those who came before us. But then, when we began to burn the dead in the manner of the Sarmatians, we continued to use the mounds ceremonially. Whenever one who was living had taken toward an evil path, we would place him in the tomb as if dead and he would have the chance to emerge a new being, to walk a different path, having died, so to speak, toward his errors. It was part of the healer's way, as you see, to deal with bad spirits among the people. But today, this borough receives the king, as in older days. The king of the ancestors, I said. Yes. We watched the funeral proceed through the entombment of the king, and I was afraid to press with further questions. When the people began to return across the causeway, the boy spoke to me again. I will take you through our village, and then on to your home, safe from your pursuers. Come now, Narancha. Narancha? I mumbled. He tugged a lock of my hair and smiled. I've been called worse than orange, I thought, so I didn't protest. I didn't get the words out to tell him it was died before he spoke again, and looking back now, I'm glad that I didn't. You can call me Dushan. Did you see the old man with the dogs? I asked him. I think he saved me. Old man with the dogs, he repeated. You speak very unusually. I wanted to tell him the same. No, the old man, that's a good word for him, actually, doesn't particularly save anybody, he said at last. But it sounds rather like you had a grain of good fortune this night. He grabbed a lock of his own black hair and tugged on it, smiling at me again, 
such a boyish, troublemaking smile. See, you are orange like the ancient ones, the ones long ago, before even me, like the most ancient lords, like the Sarmatians and Scythians of old as well. I like it. You speak funny, I told him in turn. He laughed. Come, he said, and offered his hand. I will take you safely through the village, and then on wherever it is you must go. Only I invite you to stay till morning when it is safer to travel. You, you are a spirit, I asked. He took my hand in his and began to lead me. Yes, my lady. About the king, I began to say. Yes, he interrupted. He is dead. I was unsure whether to protest that this was obvious for one having a funeral, or that it seemed nonsensical given that he was already dead, assuming he was an ancestor like Dushan. And you? I indeed have died to the living. The impossible lay before us, yet became only clearer, more certain, the flame-lapping lights of a village in the woods, a village of sunken flagstone and mud houses built into the ground, with hearths burning and ghosts of smoke escaping through their chimneys into the night. Welcome to the place of ancestors, Duchamp told me. He stopped me at the edge of the town and now took both of my hands in his. Listen, Narancha, I must tell you more about the death of the king. There's a darkness here, over our village. A curse, a plague, a plight. This killed the king. This caused his second death. For some time, Narancha, this curse has been tied to our black earth here. And it has killed many of us, even now the king. You see, Narancha, it is truly not safe to see you on to home by night through these woods. There is an empire. I tried to correlate his words to the way things are said now. Did you say, I started with caution, vampire? Ah, umpira, he repeated, his smile returning. You know, one who has not been burned, um, the cursed dead, one who can neither rest nor move on. But come now, Narancha. Let us have some supper, and then my family shall put you up tonight. You'll be safe in the morning. Dushan led me by the hand through the little half-buried houses. I could see down into some through portals and through chimneys. See-through people went through their lives with every sense of normalcy. Eating supper, tending the fire, sitting around the hearth, playing games, singing old songs. Some looked up and saw us pass and waved. My heart beat a million beats a minute. Asim had run through the woods toward the pond, where he heard the singing. He had to be near people, and not the people of the camp if he could help it. Now he gazed into the moonlit water, which rippled serenely around the busts of the women who sang to him just off the bank. In his country they spoke of jinn, and he reasoned this must be something like that. And these women, perhaps, the Horis promised to bring beauty to the walls of paradise. But he had never seen such things, nor thought seriously that he ever might. 
Perhaps, also, this was some sort of sorcery, the sorcery of an infidel people, and perhaps he should flee before he fall prey to it. But Asim's father had not been particularly religious. That was more the province of the Taliban. So, even more so, did this alien scene defy comprehension. They held their eyes on him, big bright eyes, and brushed their matted hair as they sang, expressionless, yet hauntingly alluring. He didn't want to leave them. He didn't want to mistrust them. They were more beautiful than anything he'd ever seen. He'd only seen naked women a few times, surreptitiously, on Twitter. His father had beaten him for that. The shamelessness of these foreign women, spirits or not, made his face burn. To Asim's great shock, the nearest of these ghostly women, one who was blonde and fair, spoke to him in perfect Nuristani, sweetly, yet without the hint of a smile. Come closer, young man. Come and swim with us this evening. The inside of the house smelled of warm earth and spices, and the walls glimmered, dully, pleasantly in the firelight. Dushan had taken me to his home, where his mother prepared a kettle of soup on the fire. I sat at a wooden table, which was nearly the only furniture in the tiny room, beside the cots where they slept. Dushan's mother had welcomed me quite warmly into the home, leaving me feeling awkwardly doted upon. She seemed intent on fattening me with every good in their cupboard, and made pleasant inquiring conversation the whole time, while Dushan sat to the side, quiet and staring into the fire. Have you traveled far then tonight, dearie? Dushan's mother asked me. No, Granny, I, uh... Just then a lump of hair clunked under the table right before me and I started back. Dushan's mother turned round to see the source of my concern. Dushan only raised his eyebrow. The animal was a thoroughly hairy ball save for the face and the little man-like limbs poking out from the full-body beard. And the face was Dushan's face but a caricature of it. Good evening, miss, the face on legs told me in a stuffy old manner. Pardon me. I just must needs be about setting the table now. I could not find any words to reply, or to ask what this creature was. Ah, Dushan said slowly. This is our homeling, Boban. Boban stopped what he was doing dragging my placemat into place, and he bowed his little pale legs to make a bow. He... he has your face, I said. Oh, yes, the homeling always has the face of the current head of house, Dushan said. The homeling is the spirit of the household, Dushan's mother told me. That is why he reflects the household to which he belongs. Boban is only helpful. Have no fear of him. He only is cranky if he doesn't get his share of the meal set aside. Boban winked at me and continued setting my place. I don't understand, I said. You say you are... you are the spirits of ancestors, but then... Forgive me if this question is tactless, but... How is it you can die again? Why, then, are you the only living head of this household? 
Dushin stood from his seat by the fire and turned to face me, putting his hands into his shirt. When the flesh returns to the Black Mother, Dushin began. He means the earth, his mother explained. The life goes free, like a bat, some say, or like a blackbird or crow. And it is free to become something else, to go a new path, to have a new life. My first life fled long ago, Narancha, and went on its way only Krod knows where. We are only shades, bound to the sacred ground of our pyres and tombs. There is some life all its own in a shade, yes, but it is not the life that was. That life is gone on. And, in the right hour, this life, also, shall go on to be other things, and my memory fade. His face changed, I observed, speaking of the homeling, who had taken to staring at me, trying to get my attention from Dushin. Boban! Dushin shouted. As Dushin grabbed at the homeling, his face changed several times over. Dushin's mother glanced tiredly at her son, and then held my eyes. That was his father, she told me, and some other fathers of this house. Dushin had released the homeling and stared hands on hips into the fire. The homeling grinned at me, with big crooked teeth that weren't like Dushin's, and then went on his business of setting the table. Soon Dushin's mother had set the soup, and it was very nice. Thank you, Granny, I said. She said a prayer of thanks. I only remember the ending, which went, Of Hrad, who births all families in heaven and earth and below the earth. As her prayer was ended, the homeling winked at me and bit into the bread. The filthy green water was cold around Asim's ankles. The water women reached for him, more and more of them swimming out of the ink as he entered the water. A field of arms seemed to grow like reeds from the pond. Hands began to touch his legs, and then his stomach as he progressed deeper. The nearest girl caressed his face. He watched the water run from her pale breast as she rose to meet him. More voices joined the corral, but this one in front of him did not sing. Her mouth lay flat as the dead. Nearer now, he could see the veins in her waterlogged eyes were swollen. Her lips, it was hard to see in the dark, may have been as purple as the frostbitten. She held on to his face. There came a sejura in the song. Briefly, he could hear the rattle of leaves. Asim knew this was a dream, and as it was a dream, what he wanted next was to kiss her. Perhaps it was a sin, but how much would God punish a mere dream? One mere and fleeting dream, in a world so full of sin and faithlessness. Asim, having never kissed a girl, moved his face nervously toward the water woman. She smelled like dirty pond water. How could she smell so clearly like pond water? If this were a dream. Asim began to panic as she held onto his face. Her head, mere inches from his, rolled on her neck and fell down against her collar, showing him the back of her head and the part of her hair. There in the part, there were lips, rows of wet, wrinkly lips that looked a lot like the privates he had seen on Twitter, 
a mouth populated with white barbs of fish-like teeth. There was piping in the trees, like of a recorder. Elsewise it was quiet, with some breeze. There would come a few notes here and a few notes there. Rarely did the faraway pipes play over each other, and then only for a few notes. There tended to be a rest between phrases. I stood in the night with Dushin outside his house, hugging myself. We were looking at the trees, where little green men sat in the boughs. Some of these little horned gods were our pipers, glowing like verdant stars, whistling sweetly like the breeze. When did you live, Dushan? He drew a long breath. My father came to this land from the north to fight for the Romans. He was a federatus. So was I. I was to be a wolfskin like my father, like my father's, to take up the mantle. A wolfskin? I asked. Mmm, he toned. A warrior. To wear the skin of the wolf and be the wolf. But Rome called me into service while I was young, and I remained without finishing my initiation. It was the Avars. And the money and the Dacian land that Rome offered were good, but Rome asked much of us. I looked at him. He was avoiding my eyes. He went on. My father died in honor, but his honor was robbed of him when Rome accused his detachment of treason. Aligning, they said, with others of our people who had been hired to fight with the Avars. The Romans conscripted me. I was compelled to assert my faith to the denarius over the Avar coin, or else share my father's reputation. I fell on the field. I'm sorry, I told him. It was not a bad death, he said, smiling. I kept my honor. Tell me went on. How are things with you? What is the state of our people? Do we still treasure this land we bought from Rome with blood? Or did the Avars take it at last? Or, perhaps, has fate given it to still others' custody, as it was once taken and given to us? As I drew my breath and gathered my thoughts, it was then that the pipers in the trees went silent, and we heard the gates of hell breaking loose. The water woman held a seam in headlock, yet stopped and hissed. Only then did a seam become aware of the loud footfalls and yet another presence. Great lord, she sneered. What have you to do with us? Let us have this one. Or have you no compassion left for your sisters in death? There was a thump and then a slow, deep voice. I have no intention of seizing your well-earned prey, Rosaka. Rather, curiosity spurs me. I wish only to investigate this fodder you've caught before you dismember it. Asim could feel the animal draw nearer, heavy and warm like an ox. 
but Asim's face remained pinned to the Rizalka's breast. He felt his hair twirl with the forceful sniff, as if of large nostrils. Yes, it said. Verily, there are more like it. This scent is heavy through my forest, though its source lay beyond the veil of us and them. Feast enough for all of us this feast day. The water woman grasped the hair on the back of Asim's head in her claws and turned his face to the one who stood over him, who loomed like a great swart oak from the bank. Behold his face! He is exotic fair, great lord! She hissed. Asim beheld the black form, bulbous, shining, having the shape suggestive of a wasp with a teardrop-shaped face. The tar-like flesh was fluid and semi-transparent. Deep within it, like the notochord of a worm, there was a naked human skeleton. The eyes on the wasp's face glowed red. The monster stood upright and turned to gaze back into the forest. Lend me the creature, he said, extending his big, clawed hand toward the water woman. Let him lead me to the feast. And I will repay your loan in your principal's safe return, and much more in interest. The women hissed. The other stomped the ground and silenced them. For too long I have lived only on what life force has been of this charnel ground to which I am bound. Now. A new fodder comes to me, of its own accord, and with it, a whole new fount of power. I shall grow my through from them, and from their desiccated corpses, raise the legion I require to seat myself, at last, as Cesar of the dead. Do not think, ladies. That in that night, I shall forget your sacrifice. The creature swiped and removed the head of the first lady with his claws. Black blood splattered over Asim's cheek as he dropped into the shallow water. As he pulled himself from the muck, it was just in time to see the monster raise the water woman's head by her hair and drop it into his open mouth. Tell me, ladies, he said. Will you aid me in finding my fodder, or will the miserable remains of your faint lives be my food instead? And still, I will get what I want. From the direction of the pond we heard a scream followed quickly by something tearing through the trees. Dushin started and scried intently into the darkness. Come, he said, hushed. Hide within the house. He took me by the arm and began to lead me inside. He cannot easily come in, he said, because of the homeling. Who? I began to ask. Oh, Piri, he said. But then the migrant child came into the village at a sprint, crying for help. 
Behind him, something was crashing in the trees and snorting, as if sniffing him out. I broke from Dushin's arm and ran to meet the boy, as Dushin shouted, Narancha! after me. I took the boy by his shoulder to speed him on as the clamor grew in the trees and I heard the snapping of bark. I glanced back and saw only darkness. We made it to Dushin, and he shoved us into the house. Immediately, he was taking up a mantle of wolf's hide from a locker by the door, and also a bow and a quiver. The homeling had gone frantic, leaping around the floor like a frightened hare. I saw that the bolts in Dushan's quiver were tipped, strangely, with wood. Is it? The mother began, her eyes wide and blue. Yes, Dushan said, gazing from the door. People began calling back and forth in the houses. Dushan answered them, telling them that the Empire was near, to stay inside, and for the men of age to remain armed. When he pulled his head back in and saw me, he told me to stay away from the windows and chimney, and that his arrows were of hawthorn, which would be effective against this monster. I was still holding on to the boy. We were near the hearth. He was a migrant and about ten dressed in a filthy red t-shirt and jogging pants, poorly sized. I turned him to face me. Are you okay? I said, and then, Did you see it? His throat clicked. I'm... I hesitated. Narancha, I told him. What's your name? There fell a series of thumps on the earth outside, and then all fell quiet. We listened a moment, and then my eyes fell again on the migrant child. Asim, he answered. Good to meet you, Asim, I said, trying to sound heartening. Dushan's mother paced, muttering, a prayer perhaps, under her breath. The fire began to flicker and struggle as if it didn't have enough air. The room took on the dull epilepsy of brown-orange bursts of failing light. Outside, there was unnatural silence. No birds, no insects, no more faraway songs or piping. I heard something like an animal, and we all turned to see Boban in the corner, growling like a dog and brandishing a table knife like it was a sword. A sudden thump raised his hair, and ours. When I next looked at the hearth, which called my attention because the light had grown still dimmer, the flames had changed. They were like the dripping of black blood in reverse, upward from the wood. I marveled at this when Asim screamed. As the ruddy light flashed, it revealed the figures in the earth and stone windows, and the one at the door, all facing away, showing the parts of the black hair on the backs of their heads, and their corpse-like wan shoulders. Asim buried his face in my side. My eyes flicked from one woman to the next. I shook so hard I could hardly stay upright. Dushan backed into the center of the room and leveled his bow and turns toward each of them, watching for their move. They began to hiss, subtly at first, then louder. Dushan addressed them in a confident tone betrayed by a frantic cadence. Little goddesses, venerable ladies, whatever you may be, for what have you come to us? Give us the foreign child, the one in the door hissed. It is our aim to return the child safely to his family. If he has incurred any debt to you, 
or rendered any offense, I pray you, let us pay for it on his behalf. What shall you pay us? She hissed. When we already intend to feed on your very lives. The light flickered, and when I could see again, the backs of their heads and the parts of their hair had all opened into horrible vertical mouths of needle-like teeth as the hissing went shrill and crescendoed like a gust of wind. Asim cried out and squirmed against me. I braced myself against the table. This household is protected by Rod, Dushan's mother said. Sire and source of all families upon the earth, in heaven and below the earth. Rod is indeed our father. The Rosalka spoke, sneering. He is father of all that comes to be, and also all that passes away. She reached with backward elbows into the window and began prying at the stonework. Her sisters did the same. Boban leapt onto the sill and bit one of their hands. That one screamed and withdrew, but he couldn't dissuade all of them at once. The house began to shake with ground. Dushan let arrows fly into the portals. A woman, struck, screamed. The house is going to fall, Dushan yelled. Mother, we must get you and our guests out of here. I die out of the house or inside it, she told him. I shall be fine to die inside it. But you must find some passage for our guests, even if our second lives be lost to do it. A din arose outside through the village, and suddenly the women were distracted. I heard a man shout, and an arrow struck one of them in the head, and she fell. More hawthorn bolts clattered against the walls and ground, but already the roof began to fall in. I covered the boy's head as earth and sticks and straw poured on us. The fire was smothered, and we found ourselves exposed to the night. However, the women were still distracted by the barrage from our neighbors, and the homeling, now that his household lay in ruins, had enlarged to the size of a large dog and was attacking one of them. Dushan took my hand. I took a seams. Come on, he said. We must. Granny! I interrupted him. I reached for her. She was covered in dirt but one of the women took her and began to eat her. Boban leapt at the creature, but it was too late. All that remained to him was vengeance. Dushan, red-eyed, cried out and sent Hawthorne bolts at her. And then, grabbing my hand, we began to run. Boban! I cried out, seeing that the homeling remained, wrestling with the last of the women and becoming overwhelmed by them. He's gone, Dushan muttered. He falls with the house. Around the town, men in wolf's cloaks stood before their doorways, armed with hawthorn bows. They pointed now into the edge of the forest, with shouts of, There and over there. A few sent bolts into the shadows, where tree boughs stirred. All stopped when a voice came from the darkness at the edge of town. Another living one is with you. Another full life. What fortunate harvest blossoms in my charnel ground tonight. Dushan stopped and pulled me close. A tree fell, and immediately hawthorn bolts rained down upon it. You're wasting your ordnance, 
Dushan shouted to them. I saw one of the neighbors, another man in wolfhide, beckoning to us, and I pointed this out to Dushan. We began running for the cover of this house, but it was then that I saw panic beset the men's faces, and a row of shouting picked up, and arrows began to fly. As Dushan, ahead of me, glanced over his shoulder with me in tow, I saw the horror flood into his eyes just as I felt myself removed from the ground, and Dushan's grip on my arm fail. Asim and myself were taken as one into a single swart and bloated hand. An arrow whizzed over me, and I heard it deflect from some surface. I heard Dushan cry, Hold! You may strike the girl! Better her die by friend than by foe! Another answered. But still, they heeded, and in their hesitance, quickly we had backed into the forest. Asim had stopped screaming. His urine wet my leg. Mine was not far from joining it. Something tickled at my cheek and seemed to play in my hair, accompanied by a snorting sound like a chuffing deer. Yes, the deep voice chortled. It is good to have my energy up before I prepare my grander feast. Quite fortunate indeed to have you a snack while well, I must yet hold on to this other one. There was a nip at my cheek that made me yell. It was warm and sharp. I had the feeling that one of these feelers that had been dancing over me had done it. Now, I could feel a warm trickle, whether my blood or his spit, I don't know. I could still see nothing, save the vague suggestion of trees ahead of me, as the creature marched on toward whatever aim. <laughs> the monster droned, and again its feelers bit my cheek. Now a little harder, a little longer and it went from a sting to a searing pain that made me scream. When the vampire released my cheek, he turned me in his hand to face him. Two round eyes like scintillating coals stared back at me, simmering. There was a moist uptake of breath, and more feelers caressing my face and chest. I heard the cascading the thump of horse hooves through the forest. The demon raised his head from me, as another wooden bolt struck him in the temple. Reaching up with his free hand, he pulled it out and cast it aside. It is time you rested, I heard, and it was Dushan's voice, but grittier. Something locked onto the creature's arm, the arm that held us and tore into the sinew. It looked like a wolf. We were dropped. Asim hit the ground hard, and I hurried to try to get him up and moving but he was hurt and paralyzed with fear. The monster swatted the wolf away, and as the wolf fell to the ground, I looked again, and it was a man on his two legs. It was Dushan, in the wolf mantle. He ran and shot arrows at the demon's head, and I pulled up a seam and ushered him the other way. The monster stomped hastlessly after Dushan. Hawthorn bolts now bristled his snout and breast. I could see in the light, in the gaps between the tree cover, that this being was enormous, with a bulbous black head trailed by a flowing moth-eaten cape. Little ghost, 
he said. I shall return and drink from your skull. When I sit as the czar of all the dead. All things are put to rest by time, Dushan called back, stoically. Even you, hoarder of life. Like a wolf, Dushan lunged for the creature's throat. The creature croaked as Dushan dug in among the swirl of appendages, which tore at him and sent clumps of fur into the air. Finally, the vampire gave Dushan a hard swat that sent him flying into the trees, where I could hear the sickly thwack of his body striking against a tree. The vampire turned back to me and to Asim, red eyes glowing with even greater wrath. I felt like vomiting. I shoved Asim to run. If the other wolfskins had not ambushed him then, we would have been caught. I ran with Asim toward where Dushan fell, and we found him, limp and cradled in a bed of brambles. I knelt and pulled at the wolf's head, which seemed at first like his own. Get up, Dushan, I pleaded. I lay his head in my lap, and his human face emerged below the wolf's muzzle. Now again, he was but a man wearing a fur. His eyes were closed and he was breathing. The clamor of battle petered out nearby, and I knew the men had lost in their final stand. Through the wind-whipped boughs, the one who had been denied a funeral came. Narancha, Dushan breathed. Run! Flee to the Black Mother! Dushan, I said, and I touched his face. Go! Now! he said. You have no more time. Let there be no worry for my sake. My people will find me, and my life shall join those that move on. Go. I will distract him if I can. I took a seam and left Dushan. We ran toward the old barrow of the king. As we came to the ditch, already the devil was on our heels in the trees. But another was in the woods. The first I saw was a pack of wolves, larger than wolves, that moved as one, and then I noticed, as they mauled the monster, that they were leashed and led by the great old man I had seen at first. I saw him more clearly now, gigantic and knobby, hoary and wrinkled, a beard and mane dotted with leaves and pine cones and needles. This god and the monster fought. They grappled and pummeled each other, taking on the swift fury of irrational animals. The vampire flowed and coursed like a tarry liquid. I could see every lean muscle in the old man of the forest as he battled and subdued the monster. Wasting no time, I brought a seam to the portal of the barrow, still open with the remains of a fire glowing, and we crawled inside. Through a tight passageway of masonry, we crawled until we reached the small chamber of the king's burial, lit still with twin torches. On a slab he lay beneath his pall. I could see the suggestion of his nose and cheeks and breast, and I wondered that the king should seem so short. Where are we? Asim wondered. His words remained weak with terror, but I was glad to hear him talk again. He hung back in the corner. I decided not to tell him, explicitly, that we were in a grave. We're safe here, 
I told him. Are you okay, Asim? I took him by the shoulder again and looked at his face. He was clearly not okay, and neither was I. We sat in the corner against the cold wall and listened to the earth shake outside until it went silent. I felt the burning wounds on my face and neck where the vampire had touched me and had tasted my blood. I studied my fingertips, red with traces of dried, dusty blood, and I felt weak. Now, with time to sit and to feel, I felt sick to my stomach, and I began to shake uncontrollably in fits. We waited long after it fell silent, until we could see the intimation of daylight coming through the passageway. Asim, to my surprise, fell asleep on my lap while I watched but I woke him when the faint purple light had turned golden. Before we left the barrow, I looked again at the king on his slab, and again I marveled that he was so small. Tentatively, I took up the corner of the pall in my fingers. I hesitated only a moment while the seam watched, concerned either by his fear of the dead or worried that I was about to desecrate the burial by my curiosity. I pulled up the corner of the sheet slowly and beheld my own dyed red hair, followed by my brow and shut eyes. I sat up on the slab and looked at Asim, whose perplexity and fear knew no words. Feeling my face, I found no more wounds. Throwing away the pall, I led Asim through the passage and into daylight. At the edge of the woods, in the chill air, as jays croaked and the sparrows sang their good mornings, Near to my neighborhood, we walked through the remains of a camp where the police had kicked out the migrants from near the park, but no one had yet cleaned up the trash, the discarded clothing, the sullied sleeping bags, and scrappy tarpaulins used as tents. If the old things that were must die, I thought, as all things do, and new ways come, I at least hope that my ancestors and their deeds are remembered, that Dushan is remembered, and the better parts of what has passed away are looked on hereafter with a smile. Ask who the uh, who the clientele are that Mother Earth is uh, servicing. I mean, she's a planet.
Well, since she's a rather tall drink of water at roughly 7,900 miles tall, her main demographic consists of various ancient gods and titans. Let's pull up the NASA livestream and see if anything is going on. Should we be watching this? It feels dirty. Only at the crust. It's magma down from there. Let's see. There she is, out whoring. Uh, oh, blood of the gods. Something is eclipsing the sun. Here comes someone now. Is that? Oh, ho, 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 ho. Hot mama. Got some time for some seismic activity? Maybe a little pulse wop? Is that on the menu? No, Puggles! I'd like to fathom that Mariana's Trench. Ah. Oh, yeah. Oh, purple Mountain Majesties. Uh, turn it off. Uh, turn it off, Brett. I can't watch. Uh, hmm. Hmm. I seem to be experiencing some geological uplift. Oh, yeah, that's right. I see why they call it Old Faithful. That was, that was great, baby. What, what's the damage? Oh, shit. Really? You think it was worth that much? Well, fine. I'm not cheap or anything. But buy yourself something nice, like a face I can actually look at. Thank God, he's leaving. What's she doing now? Let's see. She's handing the money down. She's giving it to the energy industries, so... So we can go on being comfortable in our warmed or cooled homes and refrigerate our food and drive our cars. She's providing everything she has to us. Because we're her children. We're a part of her. Because she loves us, Matt. Huh. She really is a saint. Yep, she's out there doing the good work for her children. See? There she goes making more money. Now here comes the sun. Oh, God. Literally. That's called a coronal mass ejection. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was Norantia, a Slavic vampire myth, by yours truly. Music was Blacksmith, by Alexander Nakarada. Good day, Monster Baiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, what's wrong with you? That's your mother. And second, please consider reviewing Monster Porn on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute and helps us out a ton. Again, be sure to check out the new designs in our store. That's at teespring.com slash stores slash monster porn. We've got shirts, stickers, phone cases, and even a mug. 
Use discount code TENTACLE15 for 15% off your order. A shout out to Jen and Cam from Our True Crime Pod, with thanks for representing us at CrimeCon in New Orleans this weekend, wearing a couple of our t-shirts. You two are awesome. If any of you monsterbaiters are also true crime addicts, be sure to go check out Our True Crime Pod. Also, we owe a perpetual thanks to our friend Edward October over at October Pod VHS for his relentless support. That's it. Until the shark angels come, stay weird, and Godspeed, strange cowboy. Welcome to Monster Porn, weird fiction and horror podcast. The podcast <clears throat> that has a glitch in its throat. I am. Because you are. Uh, let's deliver that differently. I cannot find where I'm at on the page. I had one ear, but... God damn it. There was still a line at the kebab shop, and a few people remained on the bus stop. On the bus stop. I still aimed to crop... We continued to use the mound ceremonially. And he bowed his little legs to make a bow. No, he bowed his legs to make a bow. God damn it. And went its own way. That's not what the words say, Brad. God damn it. That was... F- <laughs> what the fuck was that? Come, he said. Hushed. That wasn't hushed, Brett. Growling like a dog and brandishing a fucking table knife like a fucking badass. What shall you pay for it?